So, trying to respond to some questions that have been placed. So we come from where we've been the last minute or so. You've been pretty much sensing your mental consciousness, contents of your mental consciousness, and maybe also aspects of your bodily consciousness uh, as they arise in your chitta. And it's how your, your awareness is impacted by mental objects or physical feelings that arise from the body base. And then there was the sound of the bell, so your ear consciousness arose. And your ear consciousness is present and it's participating with your mental consciousness to understand what I'm saying. And then there'll be a pause. Your listening consciousness is there, nothing happening within it. Mental consciousness, what's going on, what's this about? And we can be aware of all these different moderations of consciousness. Six, seven, now I'll mention this because trying to explain uh, one, of the fund, one of the questions that's um, brought up about chitta, pure knowing, uh, and how does chitta re relate to consciousness, the aggregate of consciousness, and is chitta evolved with rebirth or further birth? Uh, so, uh, you know, this is <laughs> words trying to refer to experience, to why are these words there in the first place? These words are there in order to help us move through experience. You know, what is it that move? What is it that the experience happens to? You know, we might be conscious of it. We're not unconscious, but for the sake of uh, differentiation, we call that being conscious. Chitta. It's the ability to be receptive. Intelligent, that is, you both experience something and know you're experiencing it. You're, aha, that's happening. And there's a positive being affected by it, pleased, whatever, and then responding to it. That, we would say, is the, is the chitta, that, that experience. What it experiences primarily um, are what consciousness brings. And consciousness in uh, Buddha Dhamma is referred to as that consciousness of sound, consciousness of sight, consciousness of thought, consciousness of sensation. There's a six-fold consciousness, of which the dominant one is the mental consciousness, yeah, which spans or straddles the other consciousnesses and says oh without well, what's happening with that physical feeling or oh, that taste is interesting what's that strange odor or and it's translating all these experiences into um, perceptions that is oh that's pleasant that's that's susan that's a flower that's a tomorrow uh, yesterday and da, 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 da. so it's mental consciousness is translating uh, 
physical experiences, physical phenomena, sense data, into immaterial phenomena. Right? That's the object. That's the, so they're internalized. Yeah. So now I can look outside, look at the rain. It's raining, it's quite cool, rainy in Britain at this time. Uh-huh. And maybe feel, well, you know, that was the summer gone, now we're coming into winter. That's, my, that's mental consciousness. Seeing something, and then that seeing is recognized, that means that, right? You know, that recognition is the act of the mental consciousness names the experience, it's nama, as something, and then interprets it. Oh, this is beginning of coming towards winter, and then maybe a disagreeable feeling. So that which is, in some sense, outside, becomes internalized. Yeah. This is mental consciousness, and this chitta then is stirred in somewhere or another. Uh, so you see the difference between so consciousness in these particular forms that create data. Chitta then receives that and then responds. Um, mental consciousness also, Chitta responds and how it responds affects what we're conscious of, where consciousness goes. So, you know, if I was uh, planning to go out and have a picnic today, I had that mental idea in my mind, then I saw the rain, the coolness, then perhaps the response would be unhappy, and I'd linger in a sense of, you know, the mind would be unhappy, uh, and then one might be in a negative state. So then we would create, and, and the consciousness would be placed in an unfortunate position, position of irritation. Um, now, at the same time, if I just sort of closed my eyes and meditated and dropped into some deeper absorptive state, what happened to the rain? Is it there or not there? <laughs> Chitra steered consciousness to another foundation. Right? And if that foundation, where it goes to, is steered with goodwill and clarity, then the result is the Chitta picks up agreeable experiences and uplifting experiences. If chitta is confused or distorted, then that where it sends consciousness in confused, distorted directions. Yeah, associated with greed or hatred or delusion. Yeah. So this sending, the, the consciousness being sent off in different directions by the impulses of the chitta, Mm, right. You know, plans, desires, wishes, projections. Then uh, consciousness established in a plane of desire or frustration or ill will, mm. or it could be placed in a place of aspiration, kindness, and so forth. It could be also it could just turn to deepen, to move out of the sense spheres or these external senses and linger in the quality of forgiveness or loving-kindness or, or absorption. 
So where consciousness arises depends upon the inclination of the citta. And that inclination and the aim of the citta can be trained to, to attend, to turn towards somewhere where it's going to find its most happy, comfortable, uh, firm, uh, clear, unblemished abiding place. This, we might say, is the very process that is what we call rebirth is about, or pono bhavika. The word rebirth, again, is one of these rather uh, unfortunate terms because, like quite a few other words in, in uh, teachings, it's a translation or a mistranslation, actually. <laughs> the Buddha didn't teach rebirth. He taught birth and he taught further becoming. So in other words, the process continues in that direction, yeah? dependent on the push of the citta. And the Buddha's understanding was, well, that continues uh, even after this body passes away. We might doubt that. Uh, you might not be clear one way or another. But you probably recognize that uh, where do intentions arise from? You, know, you don't start out with a blank sheet. You start out with some kind of interest and inclination. So in other words, it was inheritance from the past, from when you woke up in the morning, you know, from what happened to you. There were inheritance from past experiences that turn the jitta and so this is what's called um, further becoming. And, uh, you know, it's important to consider that and, and recognize that uh, because uh, this is what's called karma. If you generate good karma, then you're going to arrive, you can testify for yourself, you can arrive in a happier, more uh, pleasant place. Yeah. Um, and that's the way that uh, one trains oneself. Now, pure knowing, pure knowing is not jitta per se. Jitta can be extremely deluded, impassioned, good intentioned, uh, relatively clear. It could have pure knowing if the practice is uh, carried through thoroughly. There can be a sense of pure knowing. Um, again, this is a term that's passed around perhaps by teachers what does it actually mean when you try to relate it to the Pali does it mean Sampajanya which can be translated as clear comprehension maybe that's what they're referring to or it could be Anya which means realisation that could be what they're referring to a sense of a, a state or a knowingness which has no blemish in it and I would generally say that the, the uh, the reference to that would be this term anya, which is knowingness, knowingness. And um, you know, sampajano is that which can be knowing in a particular knowingness as it turns towards a particular phenomenon or theme. So I've seen someone has raised their hand. I wonder what's happening there. Two weeks ago, you offered the instructions on how to work with the chitta. I'd like to develop this practice and understand a little more about the non-attachment aspect. Thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, that's quite an important thing too. <laughs> Letting go, yeah. Well, it's, it's a graduated process based upon, first of all, the letting go which enables you at least to uh, not be activated by experience. You can witness it rather than just be, you know, gripped by it. As you can see what's happening. You can, you can get some perspective on feeling sad or, or excited or worried. You know, you, there it is. So that's called Viveka. And the theme is to disengage from unskillful states, that is, you deliberately unhook your intention from that, you're not going to act upon it. Dispassion, which is the second level or the second penetration of letting go, is a recognition no longer so um, activated by experience. You, you, first of all, you let go of the activation, you can witness the activation, you're getting upset, and then you begin to see, well, this is just being upset, it's not, you know, it's not even that personal, everybody gets upset, it's something that will arise and pass, and your sense of making such a drama about it changes, and you become, oh, this is just phenomenon, and what's it feel like in my body, this sense of agitation, oh, right, and then if I relax my body and feel more even-minded, well, and then it, it ceases, it's a cessation, and then relinquishment is the relinquishment of identification which is a very deep topic. So how much you can do letting go is, is a good question because uh, part of letting go is letting go of the doer. Because um, this is the, really the, the aim or the final level of, of the penetration of it is the very sense of the self who is occupied with this or that or the self who's going to make themselves into this or that or the self who should never experience this or that. <laughs> and, and who's that? Who is that? What is that? And uh, as you begin to sense that, hmm, I, 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 I am what? It's not, there's no, it's not, there's nothing. There's definitely a, uh, which is an awakened, intelligent receptivity, which I'm using the word I, because it's, it's very subjective, but it, it doesn't have any attachment to it. It doesn't have, I am good, I am bad, I am going to be this, I will never be this, I shouldn't be that, I am a man, I'm a woman, or whatever. It doesn't have that. It's just... No, no, that's just a trick, a technique when you're very involved with experiences to bring up something that, that questions the basis of there being somebody there who is involved with it. Because it's on that, that fundamental basis that uh, uh, the problems begin to mount up. And this is from compulsive engagement. Yeah. So to practice... I mean, all practices eventually will come down to the same point. And the sense of I is just a, another tip, particularly associated with the doingness of the mind. And for the meditator, the doingness of the mind can be so occupied with trying to achieve certain notional goals of what they feel awakening is about or uh, clarity or, you know, they've got this idea of so-and-so, he experienced, I want to be like that. and. 
I should be, I should never experience this. And that, that is endless, actually. Because certainly there are states that the Buddha said, it's best to steer away from these. Yeah. It's best to steer away from these states. And yet fundamentally, there will always be a foundation for states that get stuck as long as there's the sense of an identity there for them to stick upon. I want to move on because there were something like 47 questions. Some of these questions were probably things you asked several times in various ways. I'm not saying they will, that today will give you the answers. I'll give you some answers. Um, then you'll probably find, oh yeah, and then maybe you come back to it and you have to look at it again. But moving on from there, because jitter is also associated with this quality I've called intention. And intention is a very crucial thing because it's this intention or volition, certain push that arises, uh, that is the link or that which generates karma, cause and effect, that which launches consciousness or launches a conscious experience, that launches us into our seeing, which impels the heart into thought, which impels the intelligence into do this, which throws in the uh, chitta into, oh, I can't ever be this, yeah. moves the chitta towards memory, oh, well, what about that, into the future, um, into, why is she always doing this to me, you know, what's wrong with her? It's, it's throwing chitta into these positions, into the, this troubled domain of conditioned consciousness. And unfortunately, again, there's a problem with words here because jitta, in this sense, volition, intention, the Pali word is chetana. And there's a good reason to use Pali words because then you can differentiate. Uh, and so chitta and chetana obviously are pretty closely connected. Mm, yeah. The jitta always has some chetana unless it's in a state of realization, where the chetana, the impulse to to move, to propel something, to acquire something, to hold something, stops. This is nibbana. No chetana there. The rest of the time it's either kind of latent or inclining, holding, resisting, forming something. And so this is, we might say, this is very primary to, to chitta. And these chetanas are not, the English word intention fails in this respect. In the intention in English generally means something that's more clearly considered. I really intend to, you know, go to Berlin next week. Which is not what chetana means. These kinds of intentions are the, I mean, there's certainly an impulse there. But broadly speaking, this is the area that the Buddha talked about as um, you know, to be reviewed under the, uh, in terms of the, what's called samasankapa, full or right or fitting uh, aspiration or aim or intent or resolve or attitude. <laughs> so this is why we have to use Pali. 
because you, even though the Pali don't understand it, at least you know it's not quite the same as Chaitanya. Chaitanya is just like the electricity that runs into the mind. But Sankapa is something that's actually steering that electricity, you know, channeling it. Chaitanya is like the water that gushes and Sankapa is the channel that turns that one way or another. Right? And we do have some say over that. We can have, we don't. So, and here are the three Sankapas, or the foundational Sankapas, is to incline away from uh, hatred, malice, ill will, away from um, sensuality, not to be seeking gratification in the sense world, and away from um, cruelty or callousness. Uh, which means a certain sense of indifference, a lack of empathy, where we don't care anymore. So what? So what about you? So what about me? So what about her? So what about other things? It's a callous, insensitive state. And you're turning away from those towards uh, sankapas, mm -hmm. attitudes, aspirations, aims, that are imbued with... Um, goodwill, uh, forgiveness, loving-kindness, imbued uh, with compassion. Everything is of some, everything I'm aware of does affect me. You know, callousness is not appropriate. Whether I can do anything about it is another matter, but at least to have a sense of being what the Buddha called anukampa. Means, anukampa means one is sensitively empathic or empathetic you maybe feel regret over the loss of animal life or um, tragic social circumstances you're not oh well that's the way it goes you're not indifferent to it um, so you don't lose you don't lose your sensitivity you don't become thick-skinned and callous and indifferent and you don't allow uh, your will to take over your mind, desire for revenge, blaming people, uh, you know, um, blaming yourself, feeling bad about yourself, um, hating yourself, not loving yourself, but actually being negligent towards your own heart. So these, this is to be turned away from. Gratification through the senses is when we uh, seek to be fulfilled or satisfied through sight, sound or thought, touch and so forth. doesn't mean we don't notice these phenomena, thoughts, sounds and so forth, and the heart can be enriched by a response towards those phenomena, but the fundamental response we wish to cultivate is of goodwill and sensitivity, compassion and concern, yeah. Uh, that's the fundamental basis of response. Now, exactly what you do <laughs> from that level of chitta, it's very basic. Those are the foundations. And then what you can actually do in any situation depends on what the situation or the field allows. Even the Buddha could not make 
the country he was living in a peaceful place. He could not stop violence in the very place he was living. He could not create a just society. Um, and so on and so on and so on. But it didn't mean he, he didn't stop doing good and doing what he could to bring around people's individual welfare and point to the welfare of the society and the environment and the cosmos in general and say this is extremely significant because when we tune our sankapa and our chittas correctly this is what brings the entire cosmos into balance. <laughs> yeah, and the idea that cosmos in in the, I use the word cosmos rather than world because I'm not talking about a planet. I'm talking about uh, the cosmos, which means in in the Vedic Indian system, the spheres of gods. Of phenomena that we cannot see, the celestial world, the hell realms, um, you might say, you know, the immaterial cosmos, uh, and the world, the cosmos of nature, nature, supernature, nature, um, animals, plants, so forth, and human beings, and also our own inner world. So all of these interact. If our own inner world is distorted, then for sure that's going to radiate out through the entire cosmos. And there's a point where he says, you know, if people are immoral, you know, overwhelmed with passions and uh, and craving, then what happens is the spirits are not happy and uh, the climate goes strange and things go out of season and the wind doesn't blow properly and the rain and then there's a whole environmental breakdown. And you say, well, that's kind of interesting. And then you look around and think, well, that's what's happening. <laughs> that's what's happening. <laughs> you got it right. <laughs> yeah. And it's not through some <laughs> unfathomable process. And we might say, well, it's because of this bad person, you know, this bad leader. But how did he get to be a leader? Because, you know, <laughs> the society and the world system allowed it to happen. Yeah, the powers that be, uh, people uh, voted or approved of, or an individual person can't do it on their own. They have to convince others. So somehow this person was able to gain enough support to effect ruinous circumstances. So in a way, we keep our own heart and mind steady. We don't support that, 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 that. And if each individual does that, then the cosmos comes into order. And even to the point at which even if only you do that, then your aspect of the cosmos comes into order. Yeah? Because the cosmos is the experienceable domain beyond our rational perspectives. Yeah. And so clearly the Buddha was able to live an equanimous and happy life in a world that was pretty brutal um, and uh, violent because he had his own, you know, his perspectives were that way. So Sankapa is very significant because this is where we steer the Chaitana, the impulse, 
Um, then the third way in which we can review this topic is called chanda, motivation or desire. And uh, naturally desire it can get a bad press because people normally talk about desire being tanha. But tanha is craving, which is a certain pathological, unquenchable thirst. I must have what I must have, I must have, I must have, I need to fill up. I need to this, I need to be this, I want to be this, I want to make that, you know. And whatever you do, it doesn't get fulfilled. And chanda is a skillful desire in that it's actually, I want to just get, I want to focus clearly on that and do something with that. I'm going to work with that. When I say do, I mean cultivate, I mean release, I mean let go, I mean investigate, I mean... You know, do your practice around that particular experience. That's chanda. And this is a, a basis for one of the idi part that's one of the bases of success. You have to have chanda, motivation. You have to be, you have to light the fire. You have to get the spark going and fan it to be motivated. So then one is motivated yeah, uh, towards skillful states. And you're motivated towards skillful states. Where are you going to find those skillful states? Well, you started tuning your mind to, is there ill will in my mind? Mm, well, let's look at that. Is there sense desire in my mind? Craving and thirst and attachment. Let's have a review that one. Where's that going? And my sense of indifference. Uh, am I, my mind despondent and hopeless? Let's look at that. Yeah. Let's get to work on that. Now, what you work on, of course, all these objects, these phenomena, these practices, kamatanas, uh, dispassion, loving-kindness, and all the formulations of Dharma practice is what we get motivated to. And the fundamental motivation has to be towards skillful becoming. And skillful becoming, skillful ponobhavika, skillful furtherance of citta, if it's skillful and it's persevered with, with clarity, leads to relinquishment of that passion, that desire, that fear, that ill will, that holding on, that attachment, that sense of self that leads to Nibbana. So they're not separate paths. It's not like you can do good karma or you can get to Nibbana. The, Good karma leads to Nibbāna if you practice with it. And the practice of uh, is variously termed, kamatana, and um, to tune into an, another topic that's brought up, it's the way the Buddha says uh, several times to the monks, look, here are roots of trees, here are lonely places, uh, all that I've taught, I've, I've, a teacher can teach, I've taught you out of compassion. Meditate, bhikkhus. That's what it says in the English. You look in the Pali and it says, Jayati, bhikkhuwe. Jayati means jhana. Uh, so, what does that mean? Cultivate jhana? It doesn't, it doesn't say cultivate jhana, it says jhana. Now that's translated here as meditate. You see other terms where that word is used, it's called absorption. Again, here we've got a translation issue, because these terms to us can mean rather different things. Yeah. Uh, jhana is a sort of special state that you, you know, arrive at if you're a sotapanna and you need to have this jhana, that jhana. 
That's probably that's a specific instance of jhana. But you notice also the Buddha says if you cultivate the mind of goodwill for the length of time it takes to snap your fingers, then you have developed jhana. Right? That's interesting, isn't it? Do you think you could do that for just that long? <laughs> no, it doesn't say that you've completed it, but you've got a handle on it. You've touched it. You've touched the principle of what is that principle? The principle fundamentally engage with your mind. Engage with your mind at the roots of your mind. Don't engage with your mind in terms of, well, she does this and he doesn't know that. And what am I going to do about this? And what am I going to do about that? Then you're engaging with worry, right? And Or he always treats me like an idiot. Da, 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 da. Then you're engaging with resentment. You want to engage with those, at least name what they are. Okay, here is resentment, here is fear, here is intimidation. Right, let's engage with that. What does that feel like in the chitta? This engaging means you, you get to terms with it and you begin to deconstruct the complexities of it all. And this deconstructing process goes along with what jhana is about. It's about a, a deconstruction of the multifaceted way in which phenomena manifest yeah, through consciousness, mind consciousness. Got him, her, my brother, my sister, my dead father, my grandfather, the state of the world, my pet dog, what I'm going to do tomorrow. Who's winning the election? Who's losing the election? It's stuff, right? Massive media saturation, massive blizzard of phenomena. Yeah, it's all it's true in some respect, but you can't. <laughs> you know, you just feel overwhelmed with it. <laughs> so, so uh, let's look at what you can deal with, which is the roots of your mind. Your mind feeling overwhelmed, oppressed. Okay, well not okay, but now you're naming it. Now you engage with that. You engage with that, you say, well let's let go of the name of the person and the time and place and get down to the, the experience of feeling oppressed. What's that like? Yeah. There's a sense of, let's say a little more tender-hearted towards that. Less dismissive. Uh, more kindly, more sustaining, more gentle in body, breathe through it. Now you're doing jhana. Yeah? And if that is cultivated properly, then what arises the mind becomes firm and steady. And this steadiness and firmness of the mind is samadhi. And then you can very well, there are certain benchmarks. And you see, when you really you know, establishes fully, the hindrances of ill will, doubt, confusion are gone. This is the first benchmark called jhana. It's really strong for you. You've established something that can then stand for you. You can recognize the characteristics of that. Oh, here the mind is steady, it feels happy, it feels open, and certainly there can be sustained inquiry into that. So a lot of thought, but mm, 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 you can navigate through that. It's called the first jhana. So someone's asking me, how much do you need for street? Do you need jhana for stream entry? Uh, well, uh, I don't, <laughs> it depends what you mean by the word jhana, of course. <laughs> but uh, if you look through the texts, you're going to see that this term is referred to... Uh, 
frequently and uh, certainly these stream interests and so forth in awakening then these are these are right there mm-hmm. now there's certain kinds of avenues that stream interests uh, favor or different people have different dispositions so you have the, the faith disposition or the sadivihara someone who's uh, who approaches through faith devotion and you can absorb into that you can become one who has a very strong basis for that so this is certainly someone who's a very unshakable foundation whereby their mind can immediately return can get to that pretty steadily and be sustained and repel the hindrances through that well they've entered the stream they've entered the stream of dhamma they're not thrown around in the world because they have an unshakable basis in faith or confidence in triple gem in the fact of awakening the practice of awakening and then being uh, you know connected fully connected and committed to that so it's streaming through faith another one's called the body witness the body witness is someone who experiences in their own body through meditation again a sense of firmness happiness and they can keep returning to that so they're sick or troubled or people insult them they can return to that and feel that sense of a firm foundation and that that's something that they know they know it's there and they know they can do it and they do it on a regular basis another one is called the ditti the one who arrives there through view through wisdom through kind of reviewing process and a sense of uh, understanding dhamma so these are different ways in which the stream entry can be configured if you look in the uh, Kitagiri Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya Kitagiri Sutta the Buddha refers to these uh, different dispositions and language is a little bit difficult as usual but they're all there and it says there's quite a few ways in which people enter this path and, um, uh, but the stream entry again it's not so much a person as a chitta right and it says, you know, the, the jitta can still be confused, get caught up with stuff, but it's it sort of, ooh, oh, wait a minute, and returns to that, those realizations. It's definitely got a realization basis that gives it a way of being firm and not being overwhelmed by hindrances and obstructions and what the world is doing. Yeah. And how much you need you need as much as it takes to do that <laughs> so you know rather than have i got first john or my second john or kind of this or that and it says this in the book and i don't know about that just you know can you be firm clear and be honest you know so you really have a refuge because that's what the stream is it's it's a it's an unbroken refuge and uh you know that's uh that's there you are really in in something that's your life is worthwhile you're not just getting by your life is worthwhile it's it's uh, it says if, and the buddha says if this is established 
you've cleared a mountain of dirt and all that's left is the dirt under your fingernails. Takes some getting out though, but <laughs> but you've certainly because you have realized yourself the mind does not have to be what the world does to it. But naturally, intention, attitude, chanda, motivation, practice, all necessary. So what happens is someone says, you know, my practice got stuck. I feel despondent. You know, with people I don't really get inspired by. You know, other people. So there's always a big topic in various questions is those other people. There's lots of them, aren't there? <laughs> and they're all they're all designed to annoy me <laughs> or disappoint me or you know or I feel obliged and weighed down by you know by the partner who I no longer feel affection for or the parent who's oppressing me or the company who seem very worldly not very you know inspiring you know yeah yeah you get used to it that's um, other people are practice <laughs> uh yeah. And it's great if you, you know, remember Kalyanamita is, is a treasure. If you have people who inspire you, you should not think that lightly of that. <laughs> uh, you should not think lightly of that at all. Because it's not supposed to just be a, some sort of isolated experience, um, but something where you're confirmed by the, the goodness that you see around you and not disappointed by the foolishness you witness around you. So what happens? Living with others, and naturally, most all others are not arahants. Most of them are extreme enterers. Uh, what do you do about that? Uh, well, cultivate goodwill. Uh, and the question of metta. Yeah, metta is a, is a, a, a domain. It's a field. So it includes yourself. It's said to be cultivated here, there, everywhere, all round. So it's an all round um, cultivation. It's not, well, I'd give her some metta, then she'd be more pleasant towards me, and I'll give him some metta, and then maybe I've done what I can for him. Yeah. But it's also metta means we're living in a domain whereby we don't allow. Uh, frustration, ill will, sadness to take over the heart. You have to shift what you point towards in that basis. And naturally, yeah, goodwill towards others, very crucial, but that can't happen unless your own chitta is established in goodwill. Which means, first of all, it's goodwill towards your own heart is, is the foundation. Otherwise, what are you doing? If you have no goodwill towards your own heart, how can you have? Where are you getting the goodwill from to send it to other people? If there's none in here. How can you send that to somebody else? Right. So you get it in here first of all, before you start thinking you can send it elsewhere. And this probably means you know letting go of the irritation and the frustration that people can bring up. Your mind feels oppressed or narrow. Well, breathing in, breathing out, feeling oppressed, feeling irritated, 
Why does he always have to do that? I've told him 50 times he's still doing that. He annoys me. It's so long. I'm fed up. I'm irritated. I'm, you know, oh, right, let's get some kindness around that. What's a kindly thing to do? Well, why don't I just feel that in my body? Take time. Let go of the idea of the person and deal with the roots of your own mind. And so you start with that. From that place, you can look at people with a mind of some dispassion. Because if I'm feeling good, I don't really need other people to be so good to me if I'm feeling good in myself. If I'm strong and firm in myself, I don't really have to have everybody agree with me. It doesn't matter because I've got this, I'm this. And that's your ultimate refuge. From that place then you're much more able to be, well, that's the way he is and she's obviously having a bad day and she's stuck in that. And yeah, well, mm -hmm. equanimity. Remember these, these Brahma-Vihara, measureless states, the four of them. Uh, goodwill, kindness, which is basically a feeding experience. So you feed your own heart. Um, and naturally, you can feed up what you see around you. So it naturally radiates. If your heart is well fed, its nature is to radiate its warmth. That's what hearts do. You don't have to push them. They're naturally, they're not not, not, I'm not talking about the skin bag, the organ of the heart, but the, I might say the heart jitter in consciousness, that has a radiant quality to it, just like fire or like light. You can't say don't radiate, it does. So it's bound to radiate and you can trust that. And so those who can pick it up will pick it up. And it can inform your speech and how you think and what you expect and naturally it means you become perhaps more compassionate towards other people's shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, she's in a difficult state. And, or more equanimous. Looks like this one's not going very far. This particular relationship, that's as much as you can get out of it. I'm open to change, but I'm not demanding it. So you're not rocked around. You've got somebody who's stuck in a habit. Or uh, this can be with people, long-term people. You know, difficult parent. You know, she's been like that for 40 years. She sees you as her little something or other who she's going to tell you what to do all the time. This is going to go on for a, for a while, probably. You just have to, well, that's her thing. Um, and not get in to um, don't participate in it. And one is able to do that without being rude. But just be clear and keep your heart steady. Um, well, we seem to have moved along a bit. Um, oh yeah, someone's talking about loss of motivation for practice. They say, well, because I've been aware of how things are impermanent and changeable, um, I can't see much point in get, just putting a lot of effort into a career if it's all just impermanent and changeable and not self. And even my sense of relationships isn't. I don't feel that interested in having relationships with people. Um, so, you know, where do I get my motivation from? What am I going to do in my life? <laughs> well, it could be time to go forth. 
they either you know become a nun or a monk <laughs> is the obvious um, uh, classical example or do live like that and put your motivation uh, into the roots of your mind uh, and no one can really say why that happens some people are not for others that's the nature of karma but at the same time this sense of loss of motivation uh, for re career relationships is because we so often perhaps I don't want to say I know exactly what you're talking about but think of career as being get a job work for a living become a manager da 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 well yeah could be that but also you could have a career as someone I am someone who generates loving kindness I don't get paid for it but that's my career <laughs> sometimes when I go through um, borders and customs they ask what I've come here to do and I say well I just come here to um, spread a little bit of kindness around that's my job or I've come to do some create some space I'm a spaciousness agent I create some space um, you know, for people <laughs> That's my job, that's my career. <laughs> I get paid for it, but I do in a way, you know, I, I get the gratitude that feeds me, I get uh, uh, friendship that feeds me, and, uh, and people express their gratitude for offering requisites, and that keeps me going. So, that's, that's my livelihood. I don't go out there selling things, but that's what happens. I'm in a relational context, so here no relationship I'm in relationship with with everything well some kind of relationship I mean I've got a you know bonded partner such like a one-off person I think this is this is um, what do I say it's it's often an accepted norm that's what we should have or should be or way we should live and I think it's up for negotiation I don't think you have to it may be that way but it seems rather um, putting all your eggs in one basket <laughs> because they, you know they can change and or the relationship changes you no longer feels inspired or they die um, but it doesn't mean you can't be in relationship it's just that there's more space in it you know it says she's here he's there da, 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 you know we, we share we exchange and that seems very valuable to me uh, but I don't want a special one-off that I'm, you know, embedded with. Um, because without that, um, without a sense of, I belong here. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not just some looking through a glass at something that's going on I'm completely different to. I do belong or I'm involved with, I'm connected to this what's happening yeah, to people. I have a certain sense of purpose in my life. That's important. My purpose isn't to become a director or a manager. My purpose is to see if I can sustain Dhamma and offer service. Offer service. Yeah. And this is one of the fundamental uh, themes for what's called um, proper 
social cohesion. And he's a generosity, dana, uh, warm-hearted speech, piyavaja, uh, attacharya, service, and samanatata, even-mindedness, which means you offer those qualities evenly to yourself, to others, to those you're not close to, to those you are close to. You offer it evenly. You spread out your act of kindness, generosity, kindly speech, kindly thought. Yeah. And you serve. You're motivated to serve. And the motivation to serve isn't necessarily even to get things done, but to pick up specific activities of generosity and goodwill not just as a theory but I will do this piece of work yeah, and carry it through through the struggle and the difficulty and the impatience and it will purify my mind you know because sometimes meditators we can get like oh, I'm not attached to anything <laughs> I don't want to get involved with anything I'm too attached and that's uh, no then you're attached too much to your own to yourself you know to your own privacy uh, and that is not, there's no, Buddha was certainly engaged. He was the first engaged Buddhist. <laughs> Deeply engaged. He didn't need to be. He'd done his own work. But he served till his dying breath. Phenomenal amount of service. And there's clearly a motivation, not for personal gain, but for the welfare of others. And if we practice, as, you know, even amongst life, we're doing kind of rather dreary things sometimes out, just working, throwing logs around or at a business meeting, and it can feel like, oh, the point of this. No. See it in the light of that which will sustain the community, that which will keep the, this um, community intact, that which will bring benefit into the world. I will do that. And I will recognise my impatience, my irritation, my frustration with other people, my, you know, and I'll, I'll clear those. Then I've got a definite practice in the world that I use as a purifier, right? Definitely something you, you, put, you put your nose to the grindstone till you finally you begin to purify the heart through, through, through engagement, through skillful engagement. And you're looking for motivation for that. And it can be a thousand things, you know looking after somebody else's dog. You know? <laughs> because anything you commit to, you're going to find times when you don't want to do it anymore. You'll find times when it becomes disappointing. you find times when you feel it boring. You think, what's the point of this? And you've got, those are your places you've got to work through. Yeah. It's not a place to say, oh, I can't do this anymore. We all get to these places when I can't do it anymore. And those are the important places to get to because when I can't do it anymore then my jitter has to rise up beyond my self view and say well stay with it stay with it and gradually discard that sense of frail heartedness or disappointment or I want people to like this and then, then you purify and the heart becomes great through that so motivation I'll deal with a couple more questions I mean you know I I'm happy to keep going I don't want to use up all your time but obviously you can leave when you want 
Uh, where were we? Oh, rites and rituals. This term, attachment to rites and rituals. Sila Pata Paramasa. A fetter, something that has to be overcome and is overcome through stream entry. Rites and rituals. Sila Pata Paramasa. What does this mean? Uh, because they're rather archaic terms. They are archaic. And again, as I've probably said five times already, this is a translation issue. And I would say, think of it colloquially, running on automatic. Following conventional structures blindly. It doesn't mean paying homage to Vishnu. Yeah. <laughs> because this is not about religion, this is about people's lives. And everybody's life, a socialised human being, there are always structures that we follow. We follow them so constantly we don't even realise that they are structures like days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's become established as seven days in a week, not six. <laughs> Why? What's different between Monday and Tuesday and Saturday and Sunday? It's just, who, where did that come from? I don't know. The seven-day week. Yeah. The 52-week year. Well, of course, in the lunar cycle, you don't have seven-day weeks. You have eight days, eights and sixes, and they, they vary. Some weeks are six, some weeks are eight. Uh, but it's just the convention. And we take that for granted, that structure. Getting a job, having a job. Say, I've been through school, university, got my da-da-da-da, it's time to go to work, get a job. I work five days a week, six days a week, and then uh, that's the structure. That's a conventional structure. And around that conventional structure, my identity is formed. I am a plumber. I am a computer programmer. I am a secretary. That's who I am. That's who I am. And then I get all the kind of praise and blame and problems associated with being that person who is not a very good manager, who is a secretary having to do too much work. And you think, wait a minute, I'm not a secretary. That's just the conventional... These conventional structures become our identities. Uh, and it gets to the point when, you know, in, in small respects, this is Monday, I have to have this done... Every Monday I do this. I always do the house cleaning Monday at 9 o'clock. If I don't do it at 9 o'clock, I feel confused. Um, you know, 6 o'clock is dinner... Seven o'clock is too late. I feel confused. So we get attached to conventional structures. So I call them systems and customs. Anything you do systematically can be a fetter. And why I say that, I emphasize can be, is because we all operate. We have to operate according to systems and structures, customs and systems, in order to create a kind of social congruence you know we all have to agree it's Tuesday not well I don't think it's Tuesday I think it's Thursday <laughs> we have to say Tuesday is Tuesday it's only a convention but there it is uh, time is a convention we have to use them to create a congruence of human activity but you do realize a lot of that con a lot of that structure is there not for enlightenment but to get you to work, <laughs> to get you to pay your taxes, 
to get you to, you know, join the army, to get you to uh, whatever it is, you know, to be a functioning member of a society. And, and you, not to question where it's going, but just to get on board with that. You realize where are they going? You look at where the society is going, they're not going to enlightenment. They're going to uh, what the leaders or, you know, where the economy goes. So you think, well, okay, that's what it's the working day week, you know, the eight hour working day or whatever it is. Even your sleep rhythms have been fashioned by work. You work all day and you sleep all night. In pre-mechanistic societies, that's not, that's not a natural rhythm. Pre-mechanistic or non-mechanistic societies, you sleep when you're tired and you work when you're not tired, when you want to. <laughs> There's no hours to it. You do stuff when you need to, when you've got the energy, and when you don't have the energy, you take a break. And that could be any time. So these are conventional structures. We operate through them, but we have to keep an eye on them. Naturally, as a Buddhist monk, I am very much structured into rules and procedures and protocols. Um, and there's certainly a lot of using those to maintain integrity, clarity, purpose, mindfulness. Because this system does not go to worldly gains at all. Worldly gains may accrue, but that's not its aim. Its aim is to use conventional structures to purify the mind from negligence, heedlessness, selfishness, corruption. And then you use them skillfully. But if you get attached to it, then I am, I am a Buddhist monk, I am this, that and the other, I am better, I am this, I'm not as good as she is, we're the best thing in the world then stress occurs. Other people should be doing this, stress occurs. You attach a self to it. And that's really what the stream enterers let go of. They've let go of these three fetters, personality view. They tend to assume they are a person who lives inside a body. Um, attachment to systems and structures and doubt. They don't really know deeply they don't haven't really penetrated Dhamma and the average person finds themselves or the untrained mind will tend to hold system structures very tightly because it gives them a sense of something firm you know they want to know where they are what to do how to do it right what time of day it is and so forth uh, what's the right system to do it uh, because they don't have anything firmer to rely upon so people get obsessed with their customs, local customs, family customs, uh, and then everything else is wrong. If they can't do it that way, they feel confused. So stream entry is very flexible and adaptable and uses systems and customs in accordance with what's purposeful, graceful, furthering, and leads away from self. Someone is confused, not certain about energies, body energies and sensations and what's an energy flow. An energy flow is when uh, the energies, the body energies or the mental energies come into harmony. Um, so we recognize sensations are only rarely in harmony. You know, it means in terms of the tactile consciousness, generally bump some parts of your body are not feeling so comfortable and other parts are and you tend to focus or on the comfortable parts and 
not focus on the uncomfortable parts, the uncomfortable parts become very uncomfortable and you get stuck in those. Or you move around and fidget, like I do. <laughs> Energies are somewhat different. Energies are associated with the overall, you might say, um, nervous system, or autonomous nervous system, how your body, how harmonious your body feels. This also can be discordant uh, because at this level the bodily energies are connected to the qualities of chitta. So if jitta is frightened, the body energies tighten up. If jitta is malicious, the body energies seize up and come hard. If the jitta is, is uh, saddened, overwhelmed with sadness, it becomes shapeless, it loses orientation, it gets chaotic. Uh, we feel that sense of droopy sadness, or we feel tight and indignant, or we feel contracted and anxious. So these are residual states that can be present. And when you're practicing, um, the idea is to focus on the body in terms of energies. And you can use simple references. References are the elements. Earth, fire, air and water. Earth, how firm it is. Whether the firmness of the body feels too hard and rigid, so you feel stiff. You know, this is not skillful. But if your firmness is good, but rigidity isn't. So these energies need to be moderated. Feeling warm is good, but feeling hot and passionate, no, not right. Uh, feeling cold and stagnant, not right. Fire energy needs to be balanced. Air energy means a sense of activity. Feeling overactive, you get very restless and stirred up. But at the same time, you don't want to be torpid and dull. And uh, water energy is a sense of cohesion, that which encompasses things but we do need to have boundaries. Now, how do these things get moderated? They get moderated. One primary method of moderating is called anapanasati. Anapanasati is to do with moving the life force, the pana, through the entire body. And move pana, life force, through the body. And uh, as you sense it, you can sense where it's getting stuck, there's where you begin to develop a mind that knows about releasing and opening. Yeah. When it feels too intense, you develop a mind and an attitude that knows about cooling and stepping back and shifting from a, a very intense area, just widening your attention to include less intense areas of your body. You feel very intense in your throat. You might say, well, what's happening in my chest, in my hip? in my leg, in my foot, and you widen. And that allows the energy to drain and equalize. And you can do this just through the mind, but um, more accurately, it's the mind that accompanies breathing, or pana. So this other topic of anapanasati, mindfulness of the pana, it's a, a large topic, but uh, it refers to, as, as you know, Panatipata is killing breathing creatures, it's taking their life away. So with Anapana, we're not particularly talking about watching a breath, 
but being mindful of the process of the breathing life force as it moves through our body and how our mind contacts it. Right? How do you know you're breathing? Without any particular focus, without doing anything more, focusing any more intensely than just say, do you know you're breathing? Are you sure? Can you feel it? Don't do anything more intense than that. What do you notice? There's a difference between breathing out and breathing in. It may be just the swelling of your belly. It could be the move, the tightening of your clothes. Right? And you notice how rhythmic it is. It's always that same rhythm. Right? Very distinctive. Breathing out is a rhythm, breathing in. And they're quite distinctive. Breathing out and breathing in. Breathing in tends to brighten. Breathing out tends to cool. Breathing in tends to uh, slightly intensify. And breathing out tends to dissipate and suffuse. So this is the life force. I encourage this personally over focusing on a particular point in your body. Because so often when you focus on a particular point in your body, you, you narrow your focus right down and your mind starts to get intense. And that mental intensity affects the energy. And that energy affects your breathing. And the breathing then gets intense. And that affects your energy. And your mind gets intense. <laughs> and then things start to go unbalanced. Or you create criteria, like I have to count every breath. To get it right and that's that attitude get it right is not a helpful attitude to have because again it sets up a particular mental act of criticism when you want to get things right and you, you're not aware of that disposition you set up the basis for failure and when you set up the base for failure to a mind that wants to get it right you set up the foundation for self-criticism mm -hmm. and you set up the failure of an identification with that and what's happening is you've developed ill will <laughs> and you drip it into your body and mind so stop doing that the Buddha just asks us can you be aware of breathing in and breathing out can you be that simple? Can you try again just to relax and be breathing in and breathing out? Feel it as it is. And trust it that the life force, which never leaves you until you die, you're always breathing in and out. If there's no pressure and no mental tension and confusion around that, it feeds the mind. Jitta can rest upon it because this is free. You don't have to make an effort to breathe in and out. It does it. It's free, it's voluntary. It's rather pleasant. It's refreshing. Can I be that simple to allow something to happen to me? And to be mindful to the extent to which I'd say, put aside other things and stay with this. No, not right now, this. 
even though it's not fantastic. And then this encourages the mind and the life force to strengthen in that particular experience. And gradually, the Buddha says, then you experience it sensitive to your entire body. And this means you work through these constricted areas where the body energy is dull or flat, uh, these areas where it's very intense and painful, uh, and you begin to breathe through all that with this disposition of goodwill. Mm. Patience, simplicity. Yeah. And you work through that. And then he says your entire body is drenched, saturated with rapture, joy and comfort. That's energy. That's not sensation. And uh, that's not a small thing. Because if that occurs, when that occurs, the hindrance of sensuality has no place to hold on because you're already satisfied. Hindrance of ill will has no place to hold on because there's nothing to be averse to. Hindrance of dullness, you're radiant. Uh, you know, you feel this joyful radiance. Hindrance of restlessness, you're comfortable. Sukha, at ease. Hindrance of doubt, speculation, hesitancy. No, there's nothing to nothing to have to figure out. You're confident. This is comfortable. You know, the mind is is not looking for alternatives, not looking for conclusions, not looking for what does this mean? Am I this or am I that? You've got something you can recognise. It's a nimitta, which means it's a recognisable characteristic. Yeah. And your body energy is satisfied. When your body energy is satisfied, your mind is satisfied. And then it's said, for one who is, whose body is satisfied, their mind is happy. One whose mind is happy, their mind is concentrated. It's samadhi uh, And again, this term needs to be reviewed because people, the English word concentration generally involves this. Uh, and uh, it's something we do, but in the Buddha suttas, it's something that happens. It arrives through dispelling negative forces. It's more like your mind is consolidated, composed, collected in itself. It's not concentrated on a particular phenomenon. It's collected and settled and firm in itself. So the Buddha never says concentrate on breathing. He says be mindful of it. Mindfulness is a form of, you could call it a form of concentration, just this, 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 this. But it's very much a negotiating concentration. That is, not that, but this. No, this. No, just that. No, not that. No, this. So then, then, you're, then you're definitely on topic. It keeps you on topic. But it's not rigid. And the result of that is Your mind, you're settled. That's samadhi. The energies are settled. And you can't settle energy through an act of will. Because that act of will is an energy. And that if you force into an energetic system, you can 
grip it into some state, but it's not settled. It's not settled in itself. It's being held together. Yeah. So this doesn't happen through an act of will. It acts through certainly a motivation, the motivation to sensitively come to terms with difficulties, practice with them, jhana, jayati, bhikkhus, meditate, don't waste your time, deal with these difficulties, dispel them, and the result will be you will be settled, comfortable in, in yourself. And that's the basis for pleasant abiding in the here and now. Right? It says if you don't get any further than that, that's a pleasant abiding in the here and now. There's also a basis whereby one can witness and put aside this view, that attitude. So it's a basis for liberation. You can review phenomena as they arise within that crucible of practice. The deeper it goes, the more fundamental, the more in-depth the review gets. So... A sketch of what Anapana is about, what jhana is about, what samadhi is about, what um, energy is about. A thumbnail sketch. and It's a thumbnail impromptu sketch, so naturally it's not perfected classical complete piece. But, you know, we'll probably be talking about this for the next ten years or so. <laughs> so, something to get back to from time to time. Let's see, I think there's a couple more. Someone talks about prayer and shamanical practices. I would say what this is referring to is some reference to power, energy, intelligence, beyond what we see or hear or touch, that so we talk about deities and so forth. And aspirations, you know, to may the universe hear me or may there something or the other, that kind of movement. Is this useful? I think it has its uses. We get very much embedded in this level of reality as if this is it. You know, this strange world of buildings and cars and trees and people and rain and so forth. That's it. That's the only place it exists. And in the Buddhist cosmos, <laughs> certainly not the case. It's just one, one stratum. And you've got these other layers, you know, that you can move through celestial realms and you know where you pray to them for help you know well <laughs> I think it can be useful the humility of it you know it's not necessarily some angels going to leap down from the sky and help you out but just that sense of you know direct beyond your world view to consider beyond your worldview, to aim beyond your worldview, to aim beyond your mental conditioning, something transcendent, to say more. Just even an opening to it is, I think, useful. And of course, this is the basis of what we call religion. Some of these religions are shamanical, they call them shamanical. But all religion is shamanical. You have the priest or the shaman or the sorcerer or the wizard. And of course, the word shamana comes from the word samana. So I'm a shamana. <laughs> They've got the word shaman or shaman from the Pali word samana or the Sanskrit word shramana. Shramana, shaman. So in other words, someone who mediates 
to the transcendent spiritual cosmos as a medium and yeah that's that's the case not everyone but uh, you do meet some Buddhist monks who definitely seem to have access with with worlds and levels beyond this one and uh, can mediate in them and, and that's uh, forest ajans some of these Kruba ajans have that capacity so yeah the humility of not just seeing this secular materialist world as the only only reality there is probably this leads on to the the last question it's about life termination and resuscitation certainly having the perspective that this particular constructed world that we see around us with a physical form with flesh and sights and sounds that uh, that that's not the one and only so it does help to us to understand uh, death in a much more um, broader and perhaps more useful perspective what we call death is just the movement from this level from this experience from this construction and it doesn't mean nothing now the secular materialist dreads death or denies it or fends it off because there's nothing else or they may even wish it let me get out of here I'm fed up I've had enough I want to switch off let me terminate then I'll be out I know you won't <laughs> doesn't happen like that the only way out is Nibbana <laughs> so once you put aside the, these views you say well there is a you know, there will be Ponobabhika further becoming in another plane of existence. What happens when this, when this one becomes extremely difficult? Yeah. And so the, you know, the very crude advice is you don't recommend people to take their own lives as such. So you're not saying, well, why don't, you know, you're 85 years old and what point is being alive? No more fun for you. Why don't you just kill yourself that's certainly not something we recommend termination like the person is comatose um, uh, maybe why keep them going difficult very difficult decision very difficult thing to do to come to terms with um, as practitioners it's probably good to create a living will to say look um, in this condition don't bother to keep me going doesn't mean kill me it means when this system can only be kept in this level of reality in this level of experience this system can only be kept in this reality through all kinds of artificial means don't bother you know don't bother that certainly from a Buddhist perspective entirely doable I think probably it becomes more uh, important because now, of course, we can keep these things technically in this conditioned reality, this particular conditioned reality, through all kinds of artificial means that were not available at the time of the Buddha. So now we, we have greater choice. Probably up for us to make the choice. You know? So recently, I talked to someone who had one of these uh, fatal disease, and he just uh, said, OK, at a certain point, you know, he's being fed couldn't speak being fed liquid and food he said just take those out 
um, that's enough. And then five or six days, dead. Very clear and uh, conscious and focused. And uh, I saw him a few days before he passed away, very intent on Dhamma. Uh, and yeah, I thought, well, it's, it's, it's an example to consider. More difficult is, okay, you know, somebody mentioned you know, some relative has dementia, crazy, what's the point of keeping him going? <laughs> ah, I wouldn't necessarily judge. I remember one of our disciples, she went into dementia. She'd been a graduate from Cambridge University, very intelligent woman, specialised in Buddha Dhamma, very intelligent woman. And then after about the late seven years, I think, then her, her mind or brain began to stop functioning. And it's just something that, that tends to happen. As we get older, our, first of all, our body's not so strong, then our brains begin to become less agile and the ability to process data. She, so she got to a point where she could no longer even put a sentence together. And she'd been a literature specialist. She couldn't even get one sentence so she couldn't even create coherent words. She just talked garbled noise. And so, but whenever we went to see her, she would just... And the noise, the sounds she made were kind of happy, joyful sounds. <laughs> so her jitter was certainly there and it was happy and joyful. Right? Just because the condition of verbal structuring ceases, it doesn't mean, you know, the person's not there or not available. Now, a person may be experiencing serious stress in their dementia. And uh, I don't think it's a... The one should say, well, you know, terminate. Uh, you know, it's not... It's one's own sense of pain and agitation and the difficulties that person's creating and your sense of concern for them. But remember, they are not the body. They are not the thinking mind. There will be another becoming for this person. Maybe there's things they're working out in there at some level or another. But clearly these are not topics one can just resolve on an online, impersonal session. But I would suggest you think carefully about what I've touched into. Um, there are fortunate births, fortunate future states. Um, and this birth is considered a very good opportunity to determine the future becoming of the citta, And to also to terminate what should be terminated, which is clinging identification with this suffering, stress, ill will, callousness. That's what needs to be terminated. And the rest of it we have to maintain respectful awareness of and approach with a mind that's balanced, understands, is patient and equanimous. So um, thank you very much for your questions. I find it stimulating encouraging uh, to be an intelligent conversation even though it's barely a conversation but some kind of food for the heart
and the fact that you know, 100, 200 of you have created some time to engage in this is also uh, tremendously encouraging. Uh, you know, this is what we we can do. This now the end of our rains retreat. So for those of you who made a determination for your rains retreat and you've managed to learn from it, hopefully sustain it, but sometimes at least learn from the mistakes. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Um, well done. Congratulations. This is how we progress through our practice and hope to be with you at a future occasion. So thank you very much and be well.